Hello and welcome to another episode of Mistakes Were Made with me, Alex Steger. And me, Frank Talbot. And today on the pod, we were joined by Mark Holman. Mark is the CEO, managing partner and a portfolio manager at 24 Asset Management. For those of you who don't know who 24 Asset Management are, they are, well, they call themselves a, a boutique, fixed income boutique, but they run uh, $28 billion or £20 billion, pounds, so by no means small. Uh, and Frank, yeah, sort of very well-respected, well-followed fixed income shop. Yeah, definitely. Uh, very successful brand in both the uh, the US and in Europe. Uh, they built a really strong following in recent years, offering that kind of go-anywhere fixed income products that were, were very successful, much like what PIMCO offered. And they... Sorry, sorry. Yeah, Pinko obviously offer other bond funds, but yeah, the Pinko Income Fund. So, so that was very much in vogue for the sort of five last five years. But those strategies got hit hard when the pandemic started, and they they weren't immune to that. And he actually addresses that from the beginning very candidly. Yeah, I thought so. Very open, very honest about you know what went on during that time, what they learned from it, and um, and indeed sort of you know how they recovered. Um, and I think on that note, we should we should just get into it. Let Mark let Mark tell us about that. So, without further ado, here is our interview with Mark Holman. Mark, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. It's uh, it's really kind of you. Thanks thanks for taking the time. Um, and we start the episode as we start every episode by asking our guests to share with us, you know, um, one or two of the biggest investment mistakes they've made over their career, uh, but crucially as well what they learned from it, you know, what, what, what you took from it and sort of how, how you came out of it. Ultimately, I suppose, perhaps a, a better investor. Um, now, some guests are more forthcoming than others, but uh, are there any mistakes that, that spring to mind, Mark? Uh, there are. And, you know, I have to say, I think this is you know, a really worthwhile series. Um, and you know, normally I wouldn't say spend a lot of time preparing. But in this case, as I, as I mentioned, I, I have prepared for this. And I've really thought about a, a lot of different things. And yeah, but we, we make mistakes continuously. We, we are constantly at school in this industry and there's, there's new things to test us, so many brand new things that we haven't encountered that we need to be honest about that it's, it's new and we have to learn. So I think yeah, sharing some of the, some of the, um, some of the, the things that have gone wrong is, is really worthwhile and, and how we react to them is, is uh, that's more important, I think. So um, I'm gonna try to give you something quite big and something quite recent um, that everyone could, can relate to. And out of all the things that I, that I could think of in terms of mistakes, you know, mistakes usually mean you don't make money, you lose money. Uh, so this, this is the biggest one that I can think of. So, um, and this relates to the end of the last cycle. So you know, economic cycles can stay, they can stay late cycle for a long, long period of time. You know, that we knew. Uh, we also knew that, you know, you know, what tips a cycle from being uh, an old cycle into the end of the cycle into a new cycle is, is usually some kind of a surprise. So by definition, it's quite hard to predict. And we do loads and loads of work trying to predict it. And it's very hard. So um, I'm kind of giving the excuse for the mistake now. The, the mistake basically was that you know, we were positioned um, just over a year ago. So going into 2020, we were positioned for late cycle. We were talking for years about how it was late cycle. We were positioned for that but we weren't positioned for the end of the cycle. We weren't positioned for how quickly things could unravel. And as a consequence of that, you know, we, we experienced you know, a big drawdown in, in March uh, 2020. So yeah, that was, you know, I have to think of you know, things in monetary terms, that was the biggest mistake. You know, it, was, it was, I think, probably quite easy to make that mistake. 
um, but it was big. Uh, so that's that's my biggest mistake that I can that I can that I can give to you. But what do we learn? I think that's the key thing. You know, you, what, do we, what do we learn from that? Just for a moment before we go to that, what can can we? Uh, can you sort of elaborate a bit more, perhaps on also so what was that positioning? What what did you position for late cycle versus what you would have positioned? You know, had you known it was the end, what 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 do those positionings look like? If you can? Oh, good point. So yeah, so in late cycle markets can be quite expensive. Uh, you know that at some stage you're going to have to change positioning. Uh, so how we were positioned was you know taking. Um, yeah, keeping our credit spread duration, because we're, we're in, in the bond sector, keeping our credit spread duration fairly low. And we had a lot of liquidity and a lot of government bonds. Okay, so we had roughly 40% of the funds um, in what I would describe as liquidity assets and, and government bonds. So yeah, so that was good, because that was late cycle. But our government bonds, they should have been much longer dated. We should have been positioned in much longer, longer dated government bonds that would have given us an incredible amount of protection at the point that the cycle went from late cycle to a uh, to an end of cycle event. So that would have helped us a lot more. So we got some of it right, the late cycle bit right, but the end of the cycle bit we didn't. And in fact, you know, to being even more honest, going into 2020, I would have said the chances of recession in 2020 were the lowest that we had for five years. So, but, but it happened and it happened so quickly. So um, I think you could forgive yourself for not seeing the pandemic coming, you know, I, you know, I, I think that's acceptable. But sorry, I interrupted you. Or Frank, are you about to come in or something? Yeah, so you, know, you, you definitely can, you, know, you can, you can forgive it. It was difficult, but you know, we're, we're paid to, you know, make difficult decisions and we're, we're paid to try to get them to get them right. So, you know, it was very disappointing uh, that, that we didn't, but at, at least we were positioned for late cycle. I'm going to go on to, I'll go on to that in, in just a moment, because I think that was you know, part of the part of the learning. So, um, you, know, you know, what did we learn as a, as a consequence? Well, the things unraveled very, very quickly. So late cycle in, incredibly quickly became the end of the cycle and you know, the worst you know, financial markets that we've, that we've ever experienced. You know, what, what happened in the three weeks of March took the financial crisis eight months to do. So, so what we learned was speed, the speed at which things closed down and the speed at which things would change. And I think that learning really, really helped performance during 2020 and also in 2021, knowing that things were going to change very, very quickly. You know, the beginning of the cycle was almost over in three months and people were saying, oh, have I missed it? You know, the market's moved incredibly quick. So from, from a market's perspective, um, the, you know, the first thing you would have done was start to buy cheap credit assets. And you know, normally the way that you would play that in, in a normal recovery is you look for the high quality assets to recover first. So you know, we, we started buying longer dated triple B, locking into these nice cheap credit assets for longer. Triple Bs were, were safe because they were protected by the Fed uh, as they went on, on to new programs. So you know, we started buying those. But you know, amazingly, you know, by the summer, they became quite expensive. By November, you had to sell those. The cycle was moving so quickly. So we're able to rotate quicker, be more pro-cyclical quicker and, and realize that things are happening quickly uh, and, and not you know, waiting for dips and, 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 and so forth. So you know, we really learned a lot at the very beginning of that cycle, even though it cost us you know, in the beginning by having the wrong positioning. That. So that's kind of the biggest one that, 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 I, could, that I could think of. Is that is that the long dated uh, positions doing really well at, at that inflection point? Is that consistent with history? If you'd have looked back and studied it, would you have seen? Yes, that's definitely where we need to be. High quality and long dated. Absolutely. And I think it was also augmented by the fact that the Fed was willing to buy investment grade corporates onto its balance sheet. So yeah. those two things yeah, combined uh, and, and accelerated it. But that, but that was that was your typical pro cyclical playbook. 
it just happened quicker than, than, than in any other cycle, any other period I could ever remember. Do you think that that's going to repeat itself, that speed from now on? Is, is that what we'll be faced with or was the pandemic in itself just so unique? I, I think the speed is unique to this cycle. You know, we, we shut down quickly, we're reopening quickly and you, you're seeing the pace at which, you know, jobs were lost and now jobs are being recreated. So I think everything about this cycle is all about speed. So therefore be, being decisive is important and, and, and not waiting around to you know, try to implement the same strategy, but cheaper or, or, or better. You think you need to be, you know, try to be ahead of the game, uh, move you know, in, in a fashion that's you know, commensurate with the speed of the cycle. If, the, if that's the case, then, do you think you'll act too quickly next time? Oh. You've, been, you've been burnt by this. Oh. Yeah, because it's like you sort of, you've learned in the short term. I don't know, how does it shape you Yeah, long, longer term? Or is that, is, that, is that a bit unfair? I, I think you would go into anything fresh with more knowledge, which is, which is helpful. Um, you know, you, the global financial crisis you know, started with a, you know, a bit of a surprise that became you know, very global very quickly. Um, and I think you, you know, we, we had that knowledge going into this one, and with the next one, we'll have even more knowledge. So I, I can't really answer that. We, we, we might be. Uh, I, I suppose there are certain things that have been done this time round that will probably be done next time round as well, in terms of you know, intervention and you know fiscal support and, um, and monetary support and the use of use of central bank balance sheets. These are probably tools that will be used again, which probably make you know make recessions quicker. So maybe we have shorter cycles. Uh, so yeah, it's probably, it probably is. Yeah, it probably is going to play into the future as well a little bit. I have a few other questions, sort of more, I guess, sort of bondy related and other investor related. Before we move on to those, I suppose that was you said you thought about your mistakes. That that's that that's the main mistake. There's no other. You know, we sort of sometimes ask, has anyone any, any others that spring to mind? I mean, it's been yeah. a bit unfair. But before we sort of move on to uh, other mistakes that you see other people make and things like that, was there anything else you wanted to sort of? There is one more. So I've given you a sort of macro top-down uh, mistake, and I think there's another one here which uh, I think um, your, your listeners could hopefully uh, benefit from here. This is you know, something that happened to us uh, oh about seven years ago now. I'm, I'm not going to mention the company specifically. Um, probably won't remember the audience won't, won't remember them necessarily. But it was a company where we were getting a little uncertain on you know, on how they were running their balance sheet, and we were we weren't as confident around what they were doing as, as we would have liked to have been. So you know. We at 24, we like to engage with every company whose who's debt that we buy, so part of our process. And they were just a little bit slow coming back to us with answers. You know, we, we'd contacted the CFO. We weren't getting the answers that we were looking for. We had to badger and badger and badger. Uh, and eventually they came back answering different questions that we'd asked, that we'd asked them. So the, the quality of the engagement was poor. And what we should have done was added this to our investment thesis and exited much, much quicker. The company eventually went into, into default. Uh, now we weren't holding the bonds into default, but we, but we exited. But I think you know, when, when companies don't engage with you and you already have any kind of issues, you probably should sell first. So I think at, 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 at the time though, your, your thought process with the fact they were being tardy about getting back to you, what, what were you thinking? Were you already getting a bit nervous or were you just thinking they're too busy? Uh, um, you know, I, I think in the in the years post financial crisis, the engagement uh, and this, this was a, this was a finance company, so I'm not going to go any further than that. But it was a finance company. I think the engagement is a lot better, and companies are much much quicker now. They have good investor relation teams, so I think the, the experience is generally a, a better one. But we had we had very specific questions that would, were going to were going to confirm to us whether we should hold, buy, or sell. Very specific questions, and we wanted answers to those, like any investor would do. 
So we, we wanted to, to, to learn more to make a better investment decision. And we needed those answers, but we, we had some doubts already. So doubts plus poor interaction with the company. I think in, in this modern world now where you know, you know, ESG factors are an crucial part of your uh, investment process, you know, a company that doesn't engage uh, with you, as these guys didn't, um, you, know, you know, automatically probably shouldn't be in the portfolio. So I think that's worth, worth bearing in mind. If engaging with a company is part of your process and they're not engaging on your terms or in your speed, it's probably a company that you should avoid. And did you, you got out before the default, did you lose, did you lose money there as a result of this mistake? Or did you actually, it was a mistake in that you learned something from it, but actually in a material sense, did you, did you get away with it or did, did it cost Not you? Not really, no. I mean, we, you know, we probably lost about a third of what we, what we could have lost um, in the end. Uh, so it, it wasn't good, but it, you know, it wasn't disastrous. Um, and we definitely, we definitely learned. Um, 100% we learned. And if, if I was to come across that particular finance director on another board, I'm, I'm sure that the, the company's that wouldn't find its way into the portfolio either. Some evil looks as well, probably. We weren't, at the time, we were not happy. <laughs> now that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. And I suppose, given we've now, you've you very kindly confessed to, to some of these areas, we, we, we'll spare you now and we'll let you sort of um, uh, pontificate on, on mistakes other people are making. But I guess, you know, obviously, specifically in the sort of bond market, I think you've um, written some things about. Um, some incorrect pronouncements, I think that you think, you know, some, from the likes of sort of Ray Dalio and Warren Buffett, but more, int- you know, so whether they've got things wrong, but I guess more broadly, where do you see people making sort of mistakes in the bond market at the moment where, where, are, where are investors not, not understanding the picture or, or getting things wrong? I should probably just sort of clar- clarify my Warren Buffett and Ray Dalio point. I mean, these are obviously very, very good experienced you investors. You said they were terrible investors and no, I'm joking. I- no, no I, I, just, I said that they were wrong with their comment on, on, on bonds. You know, um, you know, the bond market is so broad these days. And I think their comment uh, needed some more context. And the context really should have been, um, you, know, treasury, you know, US treasuries or very high quality corporate bonds are going to find it difficult to perform. I totally agree with that. But on the flip side, there is such a wide market today in fixed income that enables you to invest in different parts of the fixed income markets. And there's some very, very good bonds out there that will give you very good returns. Yeah, t- returns that are, say, very good. Very good relative to what you can get elsewhere in, in terms of income from, uh, from, from you know, relatively low-risk sources. So I, I thought that comment was, was just a little bit, you know, from investors of their position to take a whole asset class and say you shouldn't touch it, it's just not right. It's like saying don't buy any equities. Just because equity markets are expensive, they're still going to be you know, places in the world uh, where you can find value. It's going to rain tomorrow, of course it is, but you've got to say where. Somewhere it won't rain. It's going to, it's going to rain in England, I tell you that. Um, <clears throat> so does that, does that apply to the sort of the money that's flooding towards Chinese government debt at the moment? Do you think that is a potential risk in the bond market? People are attracted by the yields on offer there. Some of those funds have taken in big money this year. Yeah, I think the China, so Chinese government bonds is an interesting one because, you know, in the world of risk-free, uh, risk-free is pretty much you know, return-free. And, and, and a negatively correlated um, risk-free asset is, is a big benefit into a fund. Okay, so uh, certainly in a fixed income fund, we need that nice balance. You know, we need treasuries, gilts, whatever it might be. But when the yields are so low, uh, it's very hard to justify holding them if you think the yields are going to go higher because that'll generate a negative return, which is also unwanted. Um, but the, the point with the, with the Chinese government bonds is that um, they, they still have higher yields over there. 
Um, however, the, 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 the difficulty investors would have, uh, certainly such as us at 24, is you need to take the currency risk. So are you willing to take that currency risk in order to get that government bond that you're looking for? So those two things have to go hand in hand. And what you, even though now the, obviously the Chinese currency is a lot more stable than it was in, in the past, you know, even in a, in a time of stress when you're going to need that defensive asset, you know, I would expect that the uh, renminbi would, would, would weaken slightly. So it would eat into some of your returns a little bit. But I, I totally get the, the reason why they're, why they're attractive. And in terms of, we talked at the beginning there a little bit about sort of people in sort of understanding where you are in the cycle and, and different environments and things. As we, I did maybe sort of in the US particularly sort of move into a more inflationary environment and things and I, we were doing a, a, a panel of CIOs uh, last week, sorry, it all, every day blurs into one, right, at the moment. It's very hard to keep track of that. And, and, and a couple of people on that were making the point that a lot of managers um, hadn't managed in that environment before. Um, and, and I'm just interested to get your sort of take on that and sort of whether you think people are sort of well prepared, you know, on the bond side for working in that environment when many people wouldn't have done just given sort of age and experience and things? I mean, I would, I would still rather be young and inexperienced than, than old and experienced, just for the, for the record. But um, I, I think you've had plenty of time to think about inflation this year. I mean, it, it is the number one topic. You know, and when I'm having investor conversations, we probably spend at the moment 40% of our time discussing our outlook on, on inflation. Is it going to be persistent or not? Is it transitory or, or, or not? So I think there's plenty of time to, to assess that. And when you do that, then you kind of form a view on where, where, where rates are going, what the curve should look like. Uh, and yeah, quite clearly, if some of this inflation is more persistent, we're gonna have, we're gonna have higher yields, we're gonna have a steep yield curve. And that you know, will impart losses onto treasuries, which will in turn impart losses onto, onto low credit spread, high quality products as well. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a debate that is very worth spending time on. I think if there's one thing to get right for the remainder of, of this year in fixed income, it's probably that. That makes sense. Yeah, you just yeah. But but to your point, you don't need to have been investing in the seventies to be able to take a view on it. You can. No, no, yeah, I don't think no, you no, do. No, 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 you, you could be, you, know, you, you could be sort of coloured by the by the previous cycle and say, no, 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 inflation is never going to happen. All the disinflationary forces, you know, they're, they're the ones that are driving. Um, absolutely, all those disinflationary forces are still there. But do you think that you can close the world down and then reopen it and it's still as efficient as it was before? I'm not sure it is. Do you think that you, you know, the businesses who now have an opportunity to, to take part in you know, you know, a wonderful period of GDP growth, are they going to balk at paying a few extra percent to get the labor that they need to you know, enjoy the recovery? I don't think, that, I don't think they are. So you know, from my perspective, I'm at least neutral on the possibility of inflation. And, and to be to be completely blinkered the other way, and I, I get the Fed's message. I completely get the Fed's message. M more important for us is recreating another eight million jobs. That's more important, making sure that the, that the, the recovery uh, happens, you know, evenly across uh, the population. I, I completely get that. That's the bigger of the two worries. But along with that does come another risk, and that other risk, of course, is we, we could have some inflation, which down the line they'd have to pay for. And they're taking, they're taking a different risk here. And I think we need to acknowledge that they're taking a different risk and, and see it from their perspective, because their perspective isn't necessarily our perspective. No, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks. Do you, I suppose, within the bond market, looking whether it's your, I suppose, your rivals, your peers, or just, just sort of, you know, retail money, where do you, 
what worries you? Are there any areas where you do see money going and you are worried about sort of, you know, why it's going there and things? Or, or is, is that not something that sort of you spend too much time on? Well, I guess as a, as a fixed income person, I mean, our job is to worry. I mean, we're the, we're the worriers in your portfolio and we do, we do worry about, you know, pretty much uh, everything. Uh, and certainly, you know, there are areas of, you know, of financial markets that, you know, are a concern. Uh, there's a lot of liquidity which is being pumped into markets, which is being which is being spent. You know, and when that liquidity dries up, what does it do to the asset class afterwards? You know, has the has the fundamental reason for buying the asset changed as a consequence of the price? Because if, if it has, then maybe the two things go together, and it and it creates a um, you know some kind of a bubble, if you want to call it that, in in a, in a particular part of the marketplace. But anyway, you mentioned at the beginning, we haven't got oh. to this, you know, other mistakes. Other mistakes, yeah, yeah. Well, other course, mistakes. yeah sorry. Well, I feel, other bad mistakes. To, I feel bad with people going, going no, name no, no, one, no, name two, name three, name four. Today. But if you've got them, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take them. Yeah, absolutely. So I have to say up front, and these, these are all mistakes that, you know, in the past that, you know, that, that we've made as well. So I'm, I'm not saying that these are mistakes just owned by, by others. Uh, but, you know, common mistakes that I think people could, you know, could, could benefit from. I'll start with a, a very good fixed income one, which is uh, liquidity. And I'm really thinking about my old, you know, old days in, in investment banking. Um, you know, issuers have many different bonds, so it's not like you know, equities where it has one ticker and that's one stock and that's it. You know, you know bond issuers may have a hundred different bonds, uh, and some are bigger than others, some are older than others, some are in, uh, in less popular currencies, and, and it's very easy to, to to favor one over another just based on yield. So I'll, I'll buy this bond by this issuer. It looks like it's twenty or thirty basis points cheap. Um, surely this one makes more sense. And the reason it is cheap is because it's less liquid. And when you come to want to sell it, you'll find it very difficult to sell. And the price of selling, if you have to, could be considerably higher than the amount of yield pickup that you've gained. So you really think about liquidity and how much are you paying or getting paid to take liquidity risk. So that's definitely one, one lesson. And you know, I, I, look at, I look at portfolios sometimes that have assets in them i think wow that's that's a pretty illiquid portfolio uh, yeah what, what else is on this list i'm this is great i've got uh, i got three more oh, three more um and you know, all of all of which um, we, we've um, we've uh, been involved with um, my, my second one is uh is mission creep on positioning so yeah for, for example um uh let's say let's say that you you have a you 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 put a hedge on for, for a particular market event that you that know is about to happen. And uh, as a consequence of putting that hedge on, the hedge maybe works, but the event passes. But the, the hedge afterwards seems like has quite a good position still. Do you keep the position on or do you take the position off? Or alternatively, you put a hedge on for an event and the hedge doesn't work. You know, well, that's, that's strange. Uh, maybe it will work in the future. So you keep it on. So the, the rationale for putting it on has passed. The hedge should go. So you don't find new reasons to keep, to keep that position. to engage in that position. Yeah. So I, I think that's you know you, you see that quite often, and you, you hear it talking to people you know quite often. I think that's that's quite a nice um, yeah, that's quite a nice you know learning. I think. Are there, are there any particular hedges that you've maintained longer than you needed to that, that spring to mind? Um, no, uh, but I, I can give a, a, a really nice example with the Italian referendums at the back end of, I think it was 2017. Yeah, but we, we hedged for that event. Um, again, here's the learning maybe. We, yeah, we, we hedged for that event. The event did happen. It was a bad event. The hedges made us no money at all. 
And, you know, I think it was, was 5am, I was on my way, you know, on my way to work, um, you know, back in December, whenever it was at uh, that time. And our treasury position hadn't moved at all. Wow, this is incredible. Uh, and when we came in, the crossover that we had on as well, that hadn't moved at all. So we thought, well, the event has passed. We need to take these positions off. But what can we learn from this? What we've learned is the market is really resilient to change here. And any dips that we're going to see in the market are going to be bought. And that really gave us the, the strength of knowing buying on dips. So we, we, we learned that really early as a consequence of putting a hedge on that didn't work. Didn't lose any money, but the hedge should have made money because of the event. Um, but you know, having the discipline to take it off. And then what, you, what did you learn from it? That was, that was really useful. What about uh, from from a more personal standpoint with with your you know possibly your own account any mistakes that you've made in terms of investing over the years? Well, there's a lot of a lot of those. Maybe yeah. I mean, I think with one thing you learn with your with your own account versus you know, what you're doing with the firm is you spend you spend all of your time on the firm's account and you don't spend enough time on your own account. So the probably the, the smartest thing that you can do is just buy your own funds. Then you're spending. All of your money, work with yourself and at that all point. Your time, all yeah, the same thing. that makes a lot of sense. And you had, and you, I know you have one more. You, you said there were three on this, and so, so you said there's one more. I have four. Oh, well, actually, no, we have time. time. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, honestly, Mark, you are you are you by do. far our most prepared guest that we've had. You know, so this this is great. Thank you. Uh, yeah, let, let, let's. Yeah. Hear that. Well, the, the next one is is sizing of positions. So, yeah, how do you size a position? And I'll give you an example of, of, a, of a nice bond. You know, the nice bond, if, if I presented to you now a, a nice bond yielding 6%, company fundamentals sounded really interesting. Um, wow, so, okay, so how do you size that? If you're not careful, you put too much of that very nice bond in the portfolio. And the reality is it's probably more volatile than you think. So actually, some of the things that you like most, you probably should have smaller positions in, is, is the irony of it all. So I think um, the, the lesson... And the way that we would do things now is we look at the potential volatility of the instrument as a, as a key, key driver of sizing. So in, in a way, the nicer it is, the higher yielding it is, the more likely it's to be volatile and therefore probably the smaller the position should be. I, th I think that sounds like it's applicable across the board in any asset class. You know, if, if, if something is volatile and however attractive it might look, you should probably go easy on, on how much you put in it. It's a, it's a really, really easy mistake to make and one which I would think that everybody um, is going to make at some point again and again. Um, and sorry, Mark, your last, your last one of these. Oh, the, the, the last one, it's, it's a bit obvious, but yeah, yeah, don't, uh, yeah, don't get married to your view. Um, you know, be, be willing to change your view. You know, even, even when you're completely convinced something is the case, um, things do change and you need to change as well. So yeah, yeah, be open to changing your view, be open to being wrong, be open to have the, op the opposite position on. Well, that was our interview with Mark Holman. And Frank, I think there was quite a lot to take away from that. I, you know, I think start at the beginning, really, how they handled the, the COVID crash of March last year and how they were positioned and, and what they learned from it. Yeah, uh, underestimating the speed that at which the the crisis you know unfold was uh, unfolded. And that's a word. Uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll just scoot on. This is good. This is all good. Keep it in. They weren't they weren't alone in that in that regard. But it was very interesting to, to talk about the end cycle that they needed to manage for. But they were very much positioned for late cycle, and that tipping point is a fine balance. And even a manager of managers of their experience, they they were caught out by that. 
Yeah, and I thought I thought his point about you know obviously both the speed of the of the crisis, but then also the speed of the recovery were interesting, and how that you know essentially the speed of of, of that cycle and how understanding that quickly you know meant you could be in a position to to, to, to catch the recovery, whereas whereas had you not sort of grasped that, you may not you may not have bounced back. Yeah. It was, it was a tough time, particularly for fixed income managers, no doubt. Um, where equity recovered, fixed income has been has been a minefield ever since, really. Um, but an, another another point that I like that he raised is that about that that company that that weren't getting back to him. Yeah, so more of a more of a a, a micro mistake versus a macro mistake. I'm just a very individual kind of issue exactly. specific. Exactly. And he immediately doubted, you know, what was going on. They had concerns to begin with. That's why they were asking these questions. And I think the lesson there is to act quickly if you have a concern. The, the flip side of that is, would you invest in a company to begin with if you had any concerns, if they were getting back to you immediately? The answer is probably no. So your investment case should be consistent, both for the investments you hold and the prospective future investments. And I, th- I think the last kind of big topic I wanted to, to cover here was um, inflation. You know, he didn't seem that worried about you know being able to handle that environment and you know so didn't think he needed to be 50 years old and have to have seen it before but i suppose he did acknowledge that it is the sort of the hot topic of 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 2021 and just as last year bond managers were well all investors i suppose were tested by the covid crash and recovery it does seem for bond managers that is how you handle inflation is going to be sort of the big question for for this year yeah, it was interesting listening to talk about just how much of his time in calls is now devoted to that. So it is it is the topic of the moment. It's going to be the topic of the moment for, for a number of years unless things change pretty pretty radically. And he seemed confident that you didn't need to be some 75-year-old veteran in, in order to navigate that. And I think that's the kind of good news we, we all need when it's been that long since there's been persistent uh, price rises in, in the developed world. Yeah, and I, I think I guess you know all we can do is is, is sit and wait and see how how various bond managers um, h- handle it. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that this this kind of product that he offers that's probably where you're most likely to be able to avoid it because the flexibility of of those kinds of mandates is huge versus just being in you know twenty year uh, treasuries. Exactly. Yeah. Well, look on that note, I would like to say thank you. I don't know if we did say thank you to Mark during the interview so if we didn't thank you very much indeed mark for joining us thank you the listener for listening this is our penultimate episode of the series we have one more with a very special guest coming up next week so do listen out for that but in the meantime it is goodbye from me alex stiger and goodbye from me frank talbot (laughs) 